Hello, <laughs> welcome to episode five of the No Opinion podcast, where we look at what design is um, by speaking to lots of different people and find out their thoughts and opinions on the subject of design. Um, so this is the second episode where we were out in Helsinki. I also want to just say that I've never experienced having the airplane de-iced before on our way back. <laughs> You're fascinated by that. <laughs> The man with the hose. <laughs> I, I would like to have interviewed them. Uh, I think it's great. I mean, I know it happens in cold countries, but that was, um, that was, yeah, I, I, I like that. <laughs> tangent. More from Lyle's favourite things <laughs> next week on the podcast. At the end of the episode, I'll, I'll, I'll list my favourite things. <laughs> yeah, so um, obviously this one follows on from the previous episode. Um, in this episode, we're chatting to Ansi Kara um, from Varklig. I hope I've said that right. I Probably not, but it's pretty close. I'm trying. I'm really trying. I think there was a lot of things he wasn't sure how to pronounce as well, so I think I think it's fine. Yeah, but I mean, their name in particular, he, he chats about the, the origins of that um, and how it's not really a real world, so no one really knows how to say it anyway. So. And I think we met somebody later and they, they also had a different pronunciation of it too and they were one of their clients, so, so. I think it's... Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, however you say it, Varklig, um, they um, were responsible for, for the, the design studio responsible for the the rebranding of Helsinki, and we talk uh, through that design process, which is really fascinating, um, and how they created the the sort of sprint structure to it, and with the workshops, uh, taking ideas, and they, he describes it as using them as a sparring partner so using those workshops as a sparring partner I think it's a really it's a really nice metaphor for the way those things actually operate um, and how you're sort of pushing back and forward ideas and thoughts and how they refined it to, to where they ended up which um, I think has been sort of created and implemented really beautifully um, and we sort of talk about that longevity and the implementation because it's something that we noticed going around the city although there was sort of core city-based content that we actually saw that being used in the new library that opened, which is also spectacular. Audi. Audi? Audi. Audi, I think. Audi. Audi. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a new public library and it is a spectacular space. It's hard not to go in there and be jealous or not be jealous um, of what they have. Um, and it's, it, you know, you you have people in there sitting knitting, you have people in there reading books, you have people just hanging out, meeting friends, chatting. I mean, it's it's billed as their living room for their city, and it really is. Mm. And yeah, even just down to the way the, the books are lit on the shelves, it's just really nicely considered and having trees inside and that that greenery, especially sitting um, in, surrounded by snow, um, with this sort of this natural interior um, and the sort of sharp angles. I mean, not dissimilar to another sharp angled building in our city. Yeah, yeah, it's busy, busier than any museum or gallery that we'd been in. Um, it was very well used, very popular, um, and very accessible as well. And yeah, right in the centre of Helsinki, and yeah, tourists there. The locals um, and it really underpinned I think the philosophy of Helsinki to really provide you know 
for the citizens um, in, a, in a really interesting way. Um, and also in this episode, um, we chat to Kai Hotari um, from the Cable Factory, um, which again is another fascinating sort of model within the city um, for a building, for an old industrial building that's been converted for um, creative and business use. Um, there's loads of different things uh, going on there. I think we got taken on a tour and sort of a whistle stop tour from old bomb shelters that have been turned into uh, recording studios and uh, rehearsal space to a rooftop sauna and a hot tub. We nearly didn't get them recorded at all because the tour was so vast and so long that we, we were really running short time to get everything set up and get it recorded. But what I found really interesting was the the model and the way it operates. And the, the Although it's a private company that operates the building, um, that is actually all owned by the city of Helsinki. So that as the as that company runs the building and grows and grows value in that, the, the city actually benefits from it. Um, and so as the value goes up, the, the worth for the city stays within it, which I think is really a really clever way of, of doing it and a really great model. Um, and it's something that is, is, is thriving. I mean, I mean uh, Kai mentions the occupancy is over 99%. It's just, it's, it's crazy. For such a, such a space. And, yeah. and what is a small city? Mm-hmm. I mean, Helsinki is not a massive city. Um, and then we uh, also speak to uh, Timo from Amos Rex, um, and chat about this sort of uh, amazing new building that, that's sort of not long opened um, and how they've come about integrating this into what was a city square, public space um, and they decided to create the, the museum underneath that um, with these big sort of portholes that are sculpted which, I mean, when we were there, there was guys snowboarding on it. Yeah, it was really hard not to be distracted when we were doing the podcast episode because we were looking out across that space and these guys were yeah snowboarding on it and filming and it was being used you know as a as a playground mm. um and that was nice to see yeah but even i mean the, the interior of it as well was beautiful i think we looked at um the sort of traditional woodblock techniques that they use for the flooring and some of the walls as well it's sort of, it's been really well considered um, and it's brought a lot of different styles and influences together yeah a lot of really cost effective materials used in there uh, sustainable cost effective materials that could be easily replaced if they get damaged or or worn in time is there anything else to put in that lots but let's just get into the episode okay so um yeah so it's episode five um and first off you're going to hear from Ansi from varglick my name is Ansi kahara and i'm a creative director and uh, the co-founder of the design company called Verklig, if you pronounce it in a sort of Finnish way, you can also do it Verklig if you're Swedish or... Or if you're us, Verklig. Yeah, <laughs> anything goes. <laughs> and uh, we have a... The company is... Uh, we call ourselves the... Uh, we do brand design. And the company has been here around for this the 11th year. You, you, you were involved very much with the Helsinki brand recently, the sort of city brand for, for Helsinki. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about and how the process of, of creating that? Because 
city brands are probably one of the biggest challenges in design in branding terms i would i would have thought yeah uh they pretty much my guess is that they are based on the usually just sheer size and you know the depth of the of the what you're trying to design is they are very complex structures so we proposed like a sort of from the coding or gaming world uh, the sprint method mm. system to be and that we use a lot also in other projects so the idea was to have a workshop with the city people and we asked the certain city key people to pick around 30 different from different department different uh, sections different kind of uh, approach to the matter people from the organization and they were so uh, then formed as a, as, a, as a workshop group and we spent a uh, couple hours every two weeks with this this uh, group of city people starting from scratch just you know benchmarking setting out some sort of like a, a creative wireframe that these are the you know trends of what cities look like uh, good cases bad cases functional not functional emotional all kind of benchmarking and and then then proceeding to having different kind of design uh, streams that we could take this further and then also i think at the worst or best oh and <laughs> depends on the i think we had like eight different kind of uh, streams and then will you know it, they expanded and then they condensed again so were those eight different <coughs> streams were they different versions of the city identity of where they could go yes and and you you kind of brought it together to one path that Even, eventually yes yeah. so but I mean, the eight could have a uh, similarities but i mean like a you know hybrids or idea one then idea two then idea three that's sort of like a hybrid then idea of idealization of four which is different but has something from the one and it always deep um we try to use the the workshop group as a as a like a sparring partner so you could test that would this work how do you think you can see the expressions already that okay this that's gonna that. no no way no way <laughs> so it's difficult in that sort of situation in any kind of design or branding uh process to to um keep focused i think is uh, i find anyway um and not get into a, a kind of committee decision system does that did that cause problems <coughs> uh not really because uh what was still sort of mentioned that we were uh, given a really good base so the city had done like a i think it took two years process of, of sort of like a brand um definition or, or brand uh, let's say cornerstones so they had already done kind of a emotional or functional and, and they had there was certain values that need to be represented so there was sort of one unified the goal was to create a one unified identity so it all already gave us a lot of also flexibility also like a structure that okay what we're going to design has to be somehow unified and and, uh, and there sorry. were other, other like quality words like a uh, it needed to be uh there's a contra contrast was one of the values functionality <coughs> originality you know so you could sort of reflect what you designed that will this fulfill these 
parameters set by the by the previous work. And and what sort of a, what other cities did you look at when you were kind of examining sort of city brands, maybe from other places? Did you did you explore? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, you have the closest sort of <clears throat> competitors. You go to Stockholm, and you go to go to Oslo, and you go to you know any 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 uh, European metropole. You go to see the you know London, Amsterdam. You know, very functional example of of city identity, Amsterdam. And then you have these like uh, Melbourne identities, and uh, you know, you just Google city identity. <laughs> <laughs> you pretty much cover all the all the you know the best case studies in a in a in a. The Melbourne I mean, one's a really interesting one because it, it's it's quite a it's quite a dynamic. It was a kind of a, a trend almost for dynamic kind of logos that could change and reflect different things. But they're probably very complicated ones to actually implement and 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 practice. You know, probably people will will just find one that they really like, keep using it. Um, is that something you looked at as well? Yeah, I think the the rationale behind had a big role of defining how the end result became because it was the I think thanks to the workshopping because the idea was to all we asked them to pick many different kind of fields so there were some uh, people working with uh, youth groups and uh, we used that one one example through the entire uh, process of design like this uh, this one person said that uh, they have to have to be able to use this identity for creating a punk rock uh, geek poster. So that's sort of stuck. So then on the other hand, you have really poshy, poshy applications possibly. So you get, uh, you get like a, the queen of you, you know, UK or, or some, some, you know, king coming to visit. So that identity has to also work for that occasion. So the, then you have this, uh, like a, you know, slider from the punk, punk rock geek to the queen's napkin or whatever. So, so, <laughs> so, so, so that kind of Melbourne type, like a living identity. We we tried some uh, with uh, multiple possibilities of because the other 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 side is that you have to be really flexible and be able to create a system that allows user to. <coughs> do different kind of things and even reinvent the identity but if it's too flexible then you are like okay this is this won't end well because if the amount of slack had to be really really figured out and so to sort of go to talk about what 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 actually came out so the the, the sort of finished product that you or the, the system that you created and um, so which which of the streams and, and what were the, the themes and the important parts of it that came out in the, the in the sort of the iteration that you made well i think the quite early discoveries was that the only thing that because you you if whenever possible you have something something that's dear to people let's say the city is many hundred years old anyway so so there has to be something that's that's uh symbolic for the city or 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 brand or whatever i mean whatever you call and the only thing that we could actually narrow it down was the code of arms so the old housing code of arms from, that has been around for ages and was used in the in in the let's say old identity also and so it was pretty fast narrowed to that so this has to be because everything else that we sort of managed to grasp was um, 
it at least it didn't have the sort of uh, heritage or the <coughs> like the the timeline in it so but so initially we figure out that the, let's just try to somehow revive the coat of arms to sort of because we really like you know heraldic stuff and it's it's a nice coat of arm but uh, it quite fast became evident also from the client side that it's, it's really hard to you know uh, to do communication with a coat of arms because if if you're in, in Dundee or whatever I think you have a coat of arms mm -hmm. I have no idea how it looks and it, it's, I, it's got a jug with some flowers in it <laughs> I didn't even know that yeah. but I mean if you, if you just show me the coat of arms with no explanation text to it or, or any you know background data mm -hmm. it, it is just a shield for me and that was the same problem with the uh, Helsinki so you have a boat and a uh, wave and some you know colors so and there's actually another coat of arms even in Finland that's almost identical which so and if you uh, the big big target group for city uh, branding or advertising is is, is uh, on the international market so you, cities want to have international companies in in their you know cities to invest and have the offices and and so on also for <coughs> tourists and travel so it it became quite evident that okay this will not work because it, it at least if you want to be super simple because then you always have to put a nice coat of arms there and then explain what it is so so but they all the in the in the latter phase uh, you know later 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 part of the design process everything so, was sort of revolving around the coat of arms somehow and so the final execution also is like a it's kind of coat of arms so we just took the shape of the 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 shield and then it's used in in as a as a word mark that you can basically stretch and, and put different kind of word content in it that's something we i mean before we came here we'd, we'd obviously you know the helsinki city brand we'd seen it many times on different documents and things and we were we you know it was something that looked great worked well and it wasn't until we kind of came here that we saw went to udi yesterday to the to the new library which is a, a, a fantastic space that we're very jealous of um and seeing the uh, it being reused there with the udi sort of yeah. text in there for the thing i sort of realized how flexible this was as a as a device essentially yeah and uh, it's sort of in a in a like a at the moment we're in a in the middle phase of that evolution so we are hoping the original idea that's that at that you after a few years people get you know customized with a certain typeface and certain form like this form of this uh, shield on the coat of arms so the word Helsinki or, or the language versions would become sort of ir irrelevant so so it's like in this audio case so so at one point we we're hoping that you can replace the text in it and people will still recognize it it's part of the city identity and i guess in the most extreme example you could drop text entirely from it and just use the, the sort of shield aspect to it because that would be quite recognizable in itself perhaps sure in time so, who knows but mm. Then it it really loses it. But I, I, what we really loved and love is the functionality. Mm. That if you have a school or if you have a health center, or, because if you're uh, you're a citizen of uh, you're, you're you know you live in a city, 
it doesn't give you any extra value mm-hmm. usually that if it if if uh, let's say you want to go to a doctor and or or dentist that you know that this is part of this city's this department and this sub department of this department which i mean you just want to know that okay this is the dentist or this is the library or this is the you know kindergarten named this so basically so far we have in the guidelines it's it said that always use the helsinki wordmark or the logo or or you know different language versions always and and that's a current status but that's sort of we're hoping that like in a in the near future we can start to do more of this adaptive adaptive versions and all the applications that we've seen have been very um well uh, applied you know i imagine the guidelines are being followed quite quite well i mean that's often a problem with with logos that have to or identities have to be used in very broad ways across a massive amount of different people um is that a challenge to kind of keep that keep people working to those guidelines uh, <coughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> do you yeah. did you ever have to act like the police and sort of phone people up and say i've yeah. seen the logo on a poster and it's not working right no what i mean he has the sort of like the you know the other side of the coin so given the task to design something that's very flexible so like i said you had to do the punk rock poster and then to do the queen's napkin so so the logo itself fulfills that kind of adaptivity but then you know in addition to the logo then we designed these uh, graphic elements that were also taken from the coat of arms so you have this wave mm-hmm. And, and the idea was just to even in in the most simple form if you are not very good at design or you just can you can place a picture and some text in word document so something that you could use in a really really simple way so we <coughs> sort of extracted the wave elements from the code of arms and then different kind of wave lengths of it just that so people could use that as a as a visual gimmick so that's pretty much already so you have a photo you can sort of uh, frame it with some you know form that's distinctive and then put a logo maybe type so you're pretty much done and also we made like a lot of colors this uh, i think it's 12 13 colors in the palette also the idea that you because 40000 people in the city organization you might need different kind of kind of color combinations the colors were named after the stuff that you can find in helsinki so there's some actual colors like the dark green is actually precisely the same green as is in the trams the blue is like the bus blue and you know they're named also for the ease of use so you don't have to know that please put this you know logo in pms pantone color you know three something something but you can say hey put this in the bus color mm-hmm. so it, it 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 ended that we had these uh adaptive logos with different language versions and then we had these uh six or seven different kind of wave elements and then we had these 13 14 colors and then because we are not the only one we are not doing the applications by ourselves like we just do just a fraction of them so the first applications that came out were just totally 
bonkers. I mean, because the first application we saw had they had used all the colors and all the forms in a in a very very sort of let's say psychedelic <laughs> way. Because of course it's okay. I can use them them all. So it it went from to this kind of they went crazy. Yes. <laughs> It's that excitement when you first get something new and yeah. you just want to use it all. Yeah, yeah. and it's not like that. That the, the, the people or, or designers who made it had done sort of like a bad job necessarily. It's just that you don't know because you ha- get these like a loads of elements. That what I'm supposed to do with this? It's a bit like spicing. You just put everything in it. So did we quite fast realize that we had to sort of educate the, the again like the key people who are using the application so we started to having this uh like uh, identity uh, hours that uh, we would have a, like a uh, education uh, and you know explanation of the elements to city people to city designers or whoever uses the identity and they're still being held like i think every month or month or so and they, nowadays you many times you just uh, our, our designers pick uh, some good examples that has been done and using that as a sort of amplifier. Okay, these were really nice. That please do more of this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and then, of course, the, if there's something that's totally overboard, you can sort of like flag it. Like uh, this wasn't the really the best solution because, and then you can sort of explain. Because you said so, these sessions are, are sort of ongoing. Yeah. So, yeah. is there someone within the uh, the city? Um, uh, facilitating those workshops um, or are you, you guys still involved in, in that or are you, are you yeah, 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 that yeah. on? Yeah, we, we have always like a designer or two going there and, okay. or they're coming here or So it's that sort of constant relationship to evolve yeah. and, and continually yeah. move the, the brand uh, forward. Yeah. And you collecting examples of things that you see that you, you know where they're going wrong and then presenting it back to them? Mm, secretly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a folder <laughs> somewhere. But uh, I'm, honestly it's, it's not, it's, it's quite it's quite good yeah i mean of course if you have like a really vast there's always something that's not very you know graphic design wise you know superior or really good just basic but that you know that's how it was designed to be Mm. i mean the whole uh, so you can do just this kind of normal stuff Mm. with ease so and so at the point of sort of release to the public um, what was you, what was the reaction? What feedback did you get initially from? from the, uh, the launch sort of semi leaked, and then a, and a national newspaper sort of grabbed it, and so we ended up having this forty hour a, a our uh, social media shitstorm. The weirdest comment we have a folder in in the in the in the in the server that's uh, that's labeled like feedback. <laughs> It used to be, you know, something, oh, oh shit, or something like that, and it has like a screenshots, and they were a lot, and I mean, but so that because they had picked sort of, I, I, I'm still not fully sure where the the presentation. Is. I mean, whenever you do a design design identity, you have like a sketches, so they were very quite early phase, and particular colors. It was basically. Nobody really cared about the logo or the word mark or something, but the colors. The colors were like, uh, because there was also pink. And if you have pink, it's gonna, you know, somebody's gonna 
start you know ranting about you know this is like a gay uh, brainwashing or or you know there were the weirdest comments and the color combinations were also pretty weird on because there was you can also do i mean with 13 colors you can do go crazy mm-hmm. you can do the punk rock thing or then you can be quite subtle using like a blue and a silver so there was a lot of debate so the, the the reaction wasn't for that leak anyway that wasn't a positive so how did you then I, I, it turned positive quite fast because many okay. people were commenting on the on the like okay like 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 don't you get it this is re- like really good so usually if you change something people are gonna like hate it and mm. the most loudest gonna hate it because this sucks is this it, is totally you know uh, you, you have destroyed everything this, this total shit it's very easy to have an opinion on something that's very visual and it's very easy to have an opinion on color uh, yeah. it's very easy to see be subjective and just sort of go right i like i like that or i don't like yeah. that and not think about the bigger picture yeah. and also because it's very very complex like a system so when you when you launch something you just have like a couple of colors and you have a logo or something and then it, you so it was sort of expecting that it's going to be difficult but it's it's sort of i, I mean it, it uh, nobody afterwards thinking nobody really planned it it just happened so the launch just because we had already uh, tested uh, there was a figure skating world championships in Helsinki in the spring so we had like a beta testing there so we like uh, it was totally open I mean you could see it so all the graphics in the in the competition area you know all the animations and you know we did all the you know visuals there to see how the identity works so that was sort of our uh, testing environment and, and nobody paid any attention to it then i know I, it might be that they, they thought it was part of the event mm. or, or something but it was really uh, out loud and proud in the in the event but uh, no comments but when it was then uh, like a few months later was sort of uh, put on the uh, okay look here's the new colors of and I, I think the title even said the new colors of Helsinki are pink and and uh, green. So then, the <laughs> then it uh, then it sort of didn't go as planned. And it, it, that's been something that's been was that a unique experience in your in your years doing this because it was such a high profile thing. Um, I think so. Yeah, because uh, it it well because it's so it's only for the public mostly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everybody has an opinion but it, it was sort of disappointing it, it lasted only like 48 hours of of this uh, social media shitstorm so uh, once you sort of get warmed up and almost like you know get into it like this debate because uh, uh, debate is good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so then you can sort of explain and actually in, in the end I think it, it was a good thing but I mean it was very very short mm-hmm. period so then people t- got bored and moved to the next Thing to get you know disgusted about because yeah. i mean going around the city and we've seen it in a lot of places and a lot of different uh, forms as well i mean personally i think it looks great and it feels like um the people have really embraced it like you see it around the city on like on t-shirts on bags on different elements that are there and it yeah it, it it feels like a really nice part of the city um so i mean i imagine now that everyone's kind of embraced it yeah i think so but i think that the difficulty was like like we have discussed about the the origins and uh, all the reasons of how it became like it is because it was like a it's like a huge toolbox 
so the way you just you know you have so many options that you could do with it mm. so, so it was sort of expecting that it, it will take time to i mean even if you have the identity element it doesn't still tell you what kind of visual language does the identity have you just have the tools so so it's like a, this small steering efforts all, all along the way and now for example for the a photo narrative it's also something or 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 moving image uh, what kind of you know tone there is it's also like a big factor so that's uh, something that's been now w- worked on also with a uh, different kind of photographers and and people making moving image um so in, in, in going away from sort of branding of cities and, and looking at uh, things wider uh, helsinki in 2012 it was the world design capital um and that was something that was again something maybe wasn't hugely embraced by at the time by people in helsinki but the world saw it in a very positive light um how do you think helsinki's changed since then in design terms has it how, how has it affected helsinki um <clears throat> you mean the city the, the culture of design understanding design and and mm. understanding its place within city i think uh well uh, of course it, this is very subjective but you're ref- reflecting your own vision i'm um you know designers are very blind to these kind of things does, does it you know for the lay layman does it even do they not, not any difference but i mean um the design scene or something if you could call that in in finland especially if you just put it in in a graphic design sort of niche if you want uh, has changed a lot i think since because i was i graduated from the first first uh, design school in in 2004 so at those days it was um the for example for a graphic designer the, you have basically two options or three options you go to ad agency that we actually mentioned earlier that people call us still ad agency which is fine or so ad agency freelancer or you then you can start illustrating so those are basically the three paths that you could somehow choose something else was very very strange like uh, doing let's say type design like mm. totally never heard of so <clears throat> by the by the time of the cultural capital um, uh, we already had like a, this emergence of, of design studios like or or agencies or or you know there might be a few people companies that are specialized in in i'm, I'm talking about the graphic design mm. here mostly it's, uh, because i think in, in, in industrial design they have had always this kind of a studio approach to things so if you're if you're designing industrial design or you know anything from that uh, design niche they always had this but in graphic design they were they were not really present in finland so during those days there was this um uh, i think one of the first one who also did the identity that year was the kokora Moi cold company in finland that used to be syrup helsinki um, one of the first sort of this kind of design studios in graphic design and and we found the company in 2008 so in that time there was a lot of this kind of uh, bubbling that uh, and also business wise mm, i think some of the services that the ad agencies used to offer 
started at least partially shift to like a specialists. So I think from that cultural capital year, the situation in 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 the sort of design field has kept on the same sort of specializing track, I guess. So there's a lot more uh, specialists doing. So basically, in in the in the old world, you had more like this. Um, you go to a place, you get everything from the one booth. You basically the shopping uh, attitude has sort of, uh, I think, evolved. So you you can, of course, you can uh, get still everything from one one place, but you have to sort of uh, have this partner. So you, you get uh, somebody to do the styling, somebody to type design, someone does the you know the identity. Then there's a uh, somebody doing this and you know service design somebody's thinking about uh, who knows what so i think that's very much more diverse nowadays than it was still like a uh, five six seven years ago and how is it, so the the sort of the the makeup of that sort of graphic design and sort of those specialisms what's that makeup like in, in helsinki is it is it dominated by studios or like um bigger studios smaller studios freelancers how is that sort of balance made up I think the sort of the evolution has actually. I feel this kind of stopped. So at one point there was, it felt that we're going to have more like, a, you know, different players in the field. But a few years, it feels that it's been sort of constant for now. I think because still, even though we have also international clients, but I mean the most of the business come from domestic in, in Finland. It's it's still sort of closed market. So I think it it might. Or or does limit the number of specialists in in in, in Finland, or in, uh, at least in everything is sort of very Helsinki focused also. Which is, if you ask me, I'm not that. I I would love to have it more diverse in in Finland also, but it is still heavily Helsinki faced, um, you know, focused business. Okay, kind of, so obviously Dundee and Helsinki are both part of the UNESCO cities of design network um but i was wondering i mean like what is as a as a studio working in the city what does that mean for for you guys and do you engage with that often or is it more of a passive thing or uh in helsinki to be honest uh it doesn't really <laughs> affect the business in any way i think i think it's a lot more um no we uh for the you no, you don't really uh, do you think it should? Though? I mean, it, it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, the, the network that that gives is quite. You talk about sort of things maybe being very Helsinki focused, mm. and wanting to be more looking broader. Is that not a platform to be looking out of Helsinki into other things and potentially looking at work in other places? I haven't really uh, looked into that platform that deeply. I don't know, but we have had some. Uh, I think it's from the same platform, some, you know, student exchange inquiries, couple mm-hmm. ones, but it's it's not something that we have been proactively been, you know, even even searching or discussing. Mm-hmm. Usually it's most, the networking tends to be much more, I'm not sure if, uh, uh, personally, I don't know what would be the best way to interact. I mean, usually it happens that you meet somebody at some event and then you, you know, you know somebody and then you can go to that studio and say hi and what we have done for some sometimes and what i do personally if, if i travel to some 
some city and if there's time i i tend to sort of invite myself that uh, can i see where <laughs> where you guys because i think it's interesting to see even just the office space like mm-hmm. uh, like how do people work and what's the atmosphere just yeah. like casual casual spying I mean, that's kind of what we're doing here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We just uh, maybe, the, maybe that's the title for the episode: casual yeah. spying, <laughs> casual spying, and Helsinki. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you're right. You pick up lots of things, seeing, you know, inviting yourself to places and seeing what people are, are up to. Um, you know, the health, the health, the UNESCO uh, city design stuff in Dundee is probably quite it's quite obvious for, for being designers working in the city there aren't that many design studios we are probably one of the few yeah there's um, a few sort of communal spaces where um like co-working spaces and um artist studios that are sort of blocked together but yeah independent studios are there's not it's not too many no yeah. and, and and so we're quite involved with the unesco sort of side of it with that we, we were well kind of involved with helping dundee get it in the first place and then kind of how it gets used and they're always looking at how it can be applied and how it can benefit people and they're looking more at how it benefits developing more studios developing more uh, creative talent in the city retention of people so it's, it's kind of interesting but we also have a kind of very strong sort of creative community and a lot of people kind of networking together and um, how is that in Helsinki do you have a lot of did do a lot of design studios and designers and creatives get together often or or do you keep to yourselves uh I think uh, not nearly as often that, that they should. Uh, so, but I mean, I think in in, in people do meet it, each other, in, and if you have you know, like in personal sort of uh, frame, if you know, sure, there are a couple of occasions that we have that sort of collects the the people. We ha- have this kind of a during the Helsinki Design Week, we always. Well, not always. I think this was maybe the fifth, sixth year. We have a <coughs> creative agencies uh, ping pong tournament, so it's 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 it, that's a lot of fun. That so. explains the ping pong table. Like yes, session. yeah, yes. <laughs> and so, I've, uh, how do you? What's your record like? And uh, we always usually lose. No. But we are not usually the worst, but we usually. But like there was nobody practicing on it when we came in, so that's uh, I know a couple couple agencies that really practice. Those bastards, <laughs> so they always win. So uh, it's it's uh, there's a design museum that uh, allows us to use their building. So we just line up the tables in the in the design museum, and then there's some some sponsor. You know, somebody has a client always. You know, sweets or beer or you know some weird new booze that been launched so they and pizza so but that's only one once a year so and then there's a another thing is called uh, like a, the best of the year you know design competition in finland so they have a gala so it's always in the spring so so that's pretty much of the sort of official so so there might be a lot of benefit for having more structure but on the other hand people are, seem to be quite busy so even or arranging this ping pong thing seems to be sometimes really <laughs> really tiresome but you need to relax more and have more fun yeah. you know it's not all work but there is some sure so it's it uh, and uh, of course the community is quite small in a way so so everybody seems to know somehow at least someone mm-hmm. or i mean not maybe personally but people seem to know who who is who and yeah. 
just a couple of general questions at the end just to finish ourselves up it was one that we've been asking everybody but but i think one particular to you um what does uh what does the future of branding look like to you how do you see it changing well i think i'm just basing my gut gut feeling of what we're doing i think people are more interested in this sounds very tacky but i mean uh, the, sort of the truth so i mean and the 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 real idea or real people behind the brands so i think that's very so all the authenticity of the brands that's something that at least i have a personal you know high regard or you know i i I, I find uh, that like adver advertising at at, it, at its worst as a, as a as a difficult thing to do like claiming something that you are not so i think that people are are i mean you know trump and everything it's like a post truth era so so it seems that people are really interested and, and also many clients are are really not worried but i mean sort of they acknowledge the thing that uh, they cannot really be bullshitting people mm. so i think it's it's getting more from because branding also has a sort of bad echo sometimes it did so it means like okay you, can you brand this for me so it sounds like again you you know create something you know, something not real that will packet this sort of thing nicely so i think it's it, people are more have more understanding of that okay it, it's not but inventing something, you know, that's not real for me. It's 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 about discovering who who you really are, and, and then trying to tell it to the people or or your customers or whatever. I mean, your target target audience. So I think that's something I feel that there is bubbling, which is healthy, I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. And 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 finally, what what does design mean to you? We just had a. <clears throat> meeting just before you came came here and we were talking about that some hotel has a they were arranging a there's an option called design breakfast what the hell is like <laughs> <laughs> i mean what's a design breakfast I like, do you think that word gets used too much and just uh, tacked on yes things? like creative uh, i think so i mean uh, i mean instantly if, if something says okay this is uh design product i'm like okay this thing <laughs> i bet that won't be a design product i mean you know as a, as a design it's design is it's design it's not like a value of itself i mean it, even if it is designed or then it's not designed and if it's designed you don't have to say that this is designed because if you are, have any eyes or, or you know capability of recognizing design you will see that this is designed so sorry i know that was the last question but i was just thinking you know i'm thinking you know that that sort of role of designers do you think that sometimes designers are undervalued by people and what they can actually do and they're maybe sometimes just you know it is that sort of right we have this need to produce something give it to the designer and tell them they need a brochure um, but actually you need to involve the designer early and figure out is it a brochure you really need in the first place yes of course i mean but, but i mean i think it was in the you know late 90s or something because there was this, uh, you know, immigrant and, you know, started doing postmodern typeface and there was this like a design as author kind of that you could actually start to produce your own content. Mm. Just not, oh, plus that you make it look nice. So you 
do your own you know magazines and pamphlets and you're doing post podcasts here also so it's i think that somehow mm, valuable that but i think designers don't really understand the power that they might have but on the other hand designers also think too much of themselves usually yeah i mean <laughs> you know like the, the uomo universale you know like, you know, like the, the i think i hope no no architects are re- listening but i mean they are the worst i guess because they know <laughs> the architects seem to know everything even from the graphic design to you know ev- everything so but i mean i think that's also that you ha- should be sort of honest by for yourself also that are we designers actually we i mean some are really good and yeah, but then yeah. I, I think the best designers the ego should never come into it yeah um, but also because we look everything through the lenses you know colored by design so some i i think it's sort of uh, the true th- th- truth is somewhere in the middle i mean yeah but i mean of course i mean there are a lot of stuff that uh, people tend to ask or want to do or just because it, it has always been done that way Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it, not a good o- reason for always also applies to design like if you're creating visual identity do you always have to do the logo colors typeface you know th- th- can you do some sometimes something differently mm. usually not but i mean it's it's healthy to sort of question okay do i really need to do they really need a logo yeah yep or or or, or a logo mark can it just be written with any typeface if the, if the name of the company or, or brand is, is the most valuable, could it just be no logo? Is that, not, is that not kind of the way it's going? And now you see the simplification of, of brand design for companies, big companies like uh, tech companies, again, all their personality set of their identity sucked out of them into basically a piece of type that they can use. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm undecided if that's a good thing or we're losing that sort of you know uniqueness um yeah might as well all just put it on helvetica or something it's like well that's what the fashion brands are doing it's all mm-hmm. like a, mm-hmm. but i mean i'm saying that it's a that the the outcome is not maybe the the best one but i mean the the ability to question yourself is, is good that mm-hmm. do i need to make a logo for this yeah usually you have to do and i think that's fine but i mean even to have that kind of you know the hint of doubt of of your design decisions is also healthy like okay Mm -hmm. does this have to be made in this same formula that i always do because i feel so comfortable doing this and this always works so well okay so my name is kai huotari uh, and i'm the managing director of Kaapeli, or also known as Cable Factory, here in Helsinki in Finland. Kaapeli is a cultural center uh, uh, which has been now running for 27 years. And we sort of, we've just been on a, a big tour around the space, which is phenomenal. Um, and it's sort of a, an amazing combination of so many different types of businesses and enterprises and clubs but i mean how did this come to be such a, a sort of mix of different cultures and different um sort of bodies and organizations well maybe probably a little bit a bit of an accident maybe um so what happened was that this was this place is a former cable factory which operated for a little bit more than 40 years 
in this industrial use. Uh, it was uh, in its late days owned by Nokia. And uh, then in the late 80s, Nokia started to wind down its production here and uh, because the city was getting closer and closer and they needed to to demolish the railroads that were coming coming to the factory. And, and then Nokia started to uh, rent space for artists and artisans. And, um, and then this happened right when, when the um, Soviet Union collapsed in the, in the early 1990s. And uh, then there was a big recession in Finland. And actually then the artists wanted this building to remain in cultural use. And, and actually this was what happened eventually. Those, so the city bought first this or made a deal with Nokia to get the building's ownership. And then the, the, the city formed a real estate company that I'm running now, which actually runs this place as a cultural center. And you were talking a little bit earlier about how the the actual the financial model works and the sort of balance of of artists and creatives versus the the more sort of corporate businesses that are that exist here together. Can you explain a little bit about how that how that works? So, I mean, we have a mix of different sorts of tenants uh, here in this building. It's a it's a pretty big building, uh, some fifty seven thousand square meters, and we have some two hundred two hundred and fifty tenants ranging from uh, creative industry companies to NGOs to creative um, um, organizations or cultural organizations and to individual artists and then bands, for example, and art schools. And we have three museums as well. Mm. And how we do this is that we have a very flexible pricing strategy. So um, actually the companies which are operating uh, in the business environment, they pay the the market rate, which is roughly around twenty to twenty five euros per square meter per month here in Helsinki, and uh, then the artists they pay pay maybe roughly forty percent of that, like ten euros or less per square meter per month, and we're being completely open about this. So um, every everyone is gaining. From this situation because we have a full house i mean we our occupancy rate is more than 99 percent and um, the companies want to come uh, here because of the creative atmosphere which is here thanks to the artists and, and creative organizations and cultural organizations and and then again the artists and these cultural organizations welcome the companies as well because they know that otherwise they wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to afford being in 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 this neighborhood uh, and having these these beautiful spaces, um, so that's how it came to be, and that's how we operate this this space. Do you have any form of curation of the tenants as they as they apply to move in? Do you pick skills that you need in the building, or do you just anybody that can afford the space can move in? Um, so actually, we don't curate. Um, does the, the, the only sort of mode of curation is that we pick our tenants obviously and and we have as we have a full house uh, i mean i have had during the three years that i've been here we've had three atelier spaces freed um so it's very rare um that 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 we have space liberated um 
but basically no we don't curate anything which is very very important for our our tenants that they have the complete sort of artistic freedom to do whatever they want and uh, i mean literally in our this goes also for our event spaces that we we then rent out on a short-term basis we have literally i mean bishops going out and pagans coming in the same and same 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 space uh, right after the other and 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 think about helsinki as a, a, a in a broader sense in the city um in 2012 you had the world design capital and how how have you seen changes in the city since then uh, has it has it changed a lot well, I think the change sort of started already um, in 1995 when Finland uh, became part of the, the European Union. I think there is a sort of a big drastic change that has happened um, ever since the integration. Surely also then during the design capital year, I mean, there were investments for cultural um, activities and, and that has sort of remained also in the city also here in our premises we did something uh, for the for the design uh, year but i think sort of the the overall change has come about because uh, finland and, and and helsinki has become more international and due to that uh, the city has changed as well what do you think are the biggest challenges that the city faces at the moment how, how do you see it going forward in, in future uh, well, um, Helsinki is doing pretty well. Um, I mean, and that's because we have an influx of, of, of people, although uh, we had a 10-year recession in, 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 in Finland. Helsinki was all, all, all the time gaining new new inhabitants and, and sort of the Helsinki as a city has, has done well also during that period. Um, so that hasn't really been sort of a, a big challenge. I think what we're maybe all of us are are struggling with is is the use of, of, of in in all around Europe we have these old spaces that are being liberated from their original use and then you ask yourself what can we do with these spaces? And um a thing that sort of is all, always irritating me is that very often you hear that well you should you know have this uh, in in, uh, in temporarily in cultural use and that sort of irritates me really because we've been now in this space for roughly 30 years or this space has been uh, used it was taken in uh, or the first artists came in 89 and so it's it's 30 years from now so 10 years from now this space has been more or less the same time in cultural use as in industrial use and i would like to say that this was temporarily in industrial use and and this cultural use is, is much more sustainable and permanent and you think the ownership of of the building is really important to that and uh, for people using old buildings in cultural ways exactly that's essential uh, so how we operate this is that we have ownership of the building and we don't get any subsidies from the city although we're a company owned by the city we're a private company and we renovate and we run our business solely on the rents that we gather from our tenants and we are able to do so because we own the building and we ha so we have a balance sheet that we can make use of so we can take bank loans and then 
uh, renovate the building, uh, do investments. Now we're, we will be building an extension to this building and, and um, we are not uh, threatened by gentrification, which is happening all around because we're, no one is threatening us to leave because we own our own facilities. What, what would happen hypothetically then if somebody came and offered a lot of money for the building to turn it into a block of flats? Who, whose responsibility would that be then to, to make that decision? Well, um, first of all, I mean, there are sort of many layers of protection. First of all, this is a listed building, so it would be very difficult to, to do, to do uh, that sort of a, um, a transition. Second of all, so I think what we're actually bringing to the city as a service, I mean, where all this sort of a cultural production which is happening in this, I mean, this is a place for, for artistic work. This is a place to, uh, um, to um, have art or culture as a hobby. So we have uh, thousands and thousands of kids coming to cultural courses and schools here. And this is also a place to, to uh, experience art. So we have uh, spectacles, uh, theater performances, dance performances, we have arts exhibitions. So all these three things are happening in here. And so I think the city really values this and uh, our neighboring uh, people really values this service that we bring to them. Uh, so it would create an up incredible uproar among among Helsinki people if if this would were to be touched and then obviously there's also the sort of administrational model so in our board we have uh, also our tenants represented um, and um, so that would also hinder all these sorts of uh, drastic changes and and as a as a citizen of Helsinki, do you, we've noticed, uh, I guess, in the day or so that we've been here, that there seems to be a lot of faith in people from the city and in, in, in doing things. Do you feel like, as a citizen, you have a lot of say in how the city operates and how it's how it develops? Oh, well, I've never thought about it that way. That I have a lot of say. I I think trust is definitely a sort of a key. Um, an essential part of our society and how the society works. For example, here, um, so our event spaces, I mean, we have some 57,000 square meters here and we have um, a staff which is a little bit less than 20 people. And how we operate this is that you want to rent a space, you come and fetch the key and we give you the key and then we expect you to return it when you're finished and, and uh, return the space um as it was when you took it and every time i i say to this say this to our my international colleagues they said how do you trust these people said, yes of course <laughs> and that's how it works that's how we can keep our our rates low and or affordable I'm Timo Reitoma, the head of communications and marketing for Amosrex. Yeah, um, we opened the 30th of August, so uh, uh, slightly over four months ago. So the museum is new, but uh, we have a, a long background. Uh, the Before Amosrex, we had an art museum called the Amos Andersen Art Museum. Um, 
close by, which was opened in 1965 as a private art museum. And it was one of the first private art museums in, in Finland. Uh, but the space is restricted us a lot because it was uh, a building built in 1913 as an office space and a home for Amos Andersson. So it was just full of walls and, and stairs and it became really impractical for the vis- visitors and also for especially contemporary art. So about uh, five, six years ago, we came out with the idea that uh, we'd like to build a new art museum uh, with uh, our own funding. The association Konstantbundet has Amos Andersen died without a family in 1961 and he's, he left his fortune uh, to this association that he founded and uh, so we had the means to build an art museum by ourselves and uh, we suggested that we build the new museum in connection to the old glass palace building which is here in the center of Helsinki and, and the city of Helsinki liked the idea because it, it was a architecturally really nice building that was maybe not in enough of, of a use compared to the location which is really central to in, in Helsinki and uh, we got the permission to start work and uh, in January 2016 we started digging a huge hole <laughs> and uh, finished with that last summer and then in the end of August as I said we opened the museum with an exhibition by uh, the Tokyo based Team Lab Collective which is like a 500 member collective that works with uh, immersive art and that was quite popular it was really popular uh, our old museum was had about 40,000 visitors per year and we had about 270,000 visitors in four months so it was a big change the the old museum was a really traditional art museum with a really traditional uh, sort of visitor group so it was the visitors looked pretty much like you but 20 years older and female <laughs> Uh, but now we've we've kept on to them, but also sort of broadened the visitor base, which was one of the sort of missions given to us that if we build a new museum, we need to also reach new audiences, like a younger audience and the audience that doesn't visit art museums. And also Helsinki has changed a lot in the last years. Like we've had a lot of... Uh, people move in from abroad and and just the new museum needs to reflect also the change of Helsinki that we reach reach uh, also like new Helsinki people. Did that sort of steer the architectural decisions of the building? It's very striking architecturally. Yeah, yeah, uh, the idea was to first we looked into that could we build it into the old building but that's impossible if you google like Amos Rex or Glass Palace and you'll see it's impossible to sort of accommodate an art museum in like the complete museum into that but we got the idea to build the exhibition spaces under the square that we have here it's a really old square used, there used to be an army barracks here that was burned down in the civil war in 1918 and then this glass palace was built in 1936 as a temporary building for the 1940 Olympics. But then the Olympics were postponed because Europe and the world was otherwise occupied. And, <laughs> and then 
the, the temporary building stayed there. And then the square used to be a bus terminal, but but that stopped in the beginning of the 2000s. And so there was a nice square in the middle of the city and we got the idea to build the museum underneath the square, but still keep the idea of the open square. And that sort of gave a lot of the sort of, that sort of guided the architectural process that how to build a museum a square without destroying the square. It's got uh, I, I, the the central column that sticks out the the middle of the the square with the Amistrex as a logo top. That's the original feature then from the Olympic building. Yeah, it's true. It's it's the most expensive chimney in in Finland <laughs> because it, it it's not really high, but uh, it, and it used to be used for heating the old building, but uh, we use it for air conditioning and then as a, a like emergency exit. So air comes in and out, and if people need to get out really fast, there are stairs there. But we started building the museum by digging a really deep hole, and the chimney stayed there in the middle. So there was this steel structure, and you could see and un- walk underneath it if you wanted, and the chimney was like <laughs> there on top of it. <laughs> so it would maybe be have been a better idea to move the chimney before we start digging. And, and we were really lucky because Helsinki uh, is really full of tunnels. And we were lucky that when we looked at the maps that, hey, there's nothing underneath. Well, there is a metro tunnel, but that's deep enough. So it, it, we had to consider it, but it wasn't a problem with building the museum. But it's a, it's a, very, it's a very fun space in a way, the, the square. It's, it's created a very interesting area for people to, to, to experiment on and play with, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we're now doing this podcast in our meeting room, which is in the old old Glass Palace building, and we have windows here that show the square. And uh, last summer we were still doing the final work with the square, like laying, laying the, uh, what's the word? Well, the rocks or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I knew that it was going to open the square, but I didn't know when. And I was sitting here and looking out the window, and suddenly I saw a dad pushing a baby stroller at the height. We're now on the second floor, and <laughs> at the height of my nose. And it was like, oh, so it's open. And somebody had straight away pushed a baby stroller on top of one of the domes. And then a few minutes later, we have the, had the first skaters here. And, and in the, well, now it's really cold and snowy, uh, but uh, in the summer it was just full of people just uh, sitting there, enjoying beer, snacks, and, and just tourists taking photos. So, so it was really nice how the people sort of took the square back for themselves really fast. It's interesting that you didn't know when it was actually going to open. Uh, when the, the, the comparable for us is the V&A Dundee and it was closed off to the public as well for while they developed everything and it was supposed to i think they're supposed to open the square uh, the the area around it at midnight the night of the launch of the the building so at midnight i know a lot of people went down there because they wanted to go into the water the pool that was created and splash around in it and it was still fenced off um and and nobody really knew when it was going to actually well they knew and it was very controlled um but your head of marketing and comms and you you didn't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, the the museum opened on the 30th uh, 30th of august but the square 
was finished earlier and and we was scheduled to be opened about mid uh, June but we had some small delays and then we were just waiting for it to happen and I I had gotten a mail that an email that yeah it's going to happen like at the end of the week <laughs> but I had no idea when exactly what's well, I mean for me what's really interesting is the sort of how the, all these different styles and influences sort of meet each other in the museum. So you've got this sort of um, the old cinema style with some sort of Art Deco elements to it, and then um, you go underground, and then there's this sort of um, like the real traditional methods and a, a more modern sort of take on them and the aesthetic that's created sort of in the spaces and within the sort of um, the thoroughfares to get to the galleries and things like that. So, I mean, how important was it to get? those aesthetics right so that they sort of married together to, to give us a sort of consistent feel throughout yeah it, it was definitely a big question and also uh, just how to like building a, a museum underground you don't have your sort of normal facade we had to think about that as well that if we build something new we have to somehow show that it's there but how to do it in a way that works with the old building so the architects definitely spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, and of course that goes to everything, like also the identity of the museum, like when we designed the brand identity and stuff, how to combine old and new in a way that works nicely. And in, in developing that sort of brand identity, you, you kind of worked with uh, Verklik, yeah. uh, who, who we've been speaking to as well while we're here. How, how did the process of developing the identity sort of well, I started by looking at, the, at uh, well, all the Finnish agencies and then a couple of foreign ones as well. But because Finland is such a small country, uh, it's quite a lot cheaper to, <laughs> to get it from, from a local agency than somebody from, for instance, uh, the, like London or, or Sweden or something like that. So we looked into different alternatives and then we ended up working with Verklig and it was just what I believed in what they had done before so we didn't even had have them sort of do any initial planning before we chose them or well we had lots of talks and stuff but like you just when you choose an agency you just have to look at what they've done and then once you have this feeling that they know what they're doing and what what they do can sort of work well with what you're trying to achieve then once you believe in them then it's easy i think what what i really like about the the identity is when it comes to life when it actually brings movement to it um which is it's a real sort of distortion to the typography and yeah. like i mean what was the thinking behind that that sort of approach we were having these discussions about the distorting reality and stuff and uh, I think it came from there and and just also how to be we we need to be con or wanted to be at the same time contemporary and then something that works as well with the old building and then also this is a because we're in the absolute center of Helsinki this is a visually very full environment there are a lot lots of lights and sounds and advertisements lots of marketing happening around so we need to have something that's robust enough to be noticed and then also 
I had seen that some some museums or galleries had th- done things where they had a very strong identity, a visual identity, which was overpowering to some of the artists they were showing. So I didn't like that. So we were looking at something that would be at the same time strong, but still it would work well with very different kinds of art. So when you put it in connection with something from the early 20th century, it works, or then something com- contemporary, that it would work with that as well. And that's not easy. I mean, what, what do you see as the role um, of Amos Rex within Helsinki? First of all, people have a very deep need for art, be it visual arts or music or whatever. It's something that to be happy isn't the word I want to use because art doesn't have to make you happy, but somehow to make you full, uh, you need art in one form or another. So we really had a purpose. And, oh, I used the word purpose. That's like a trend word. I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> but like, I, I'm, I have to look at this from a personal point of view because like I've personally always felt that I want to do something that feels important. And, and, and I think we've never struggled with that, that we've felt that we do something that's really important. And then compared to the other art and institutions in, in Helsinki, as a private art museum, we don't have a sort of given mission. Like, for instance, the state-owned museums, like the Ateneum, is like a, the more traditional art, and then Kiasma is the contemporary art museum, and they have a sort of roles to fill. But we can sort of do whatever we want, and we can maybe be a bit more playful than somebody else also. Uh, the Constant Funde the association that funds the museum, they're not really interested in the visitor numbers. Like they said that we don't have to all the time have this kind of cues that we had with the Team Lab exhibition. Uh, but I think that what is the idea is to is to reach new audiences, and then we don't have this. Like Kiasma does a good job of sort of telling about. Oh, very many aspects of contemporary art and then we don't have to think about the sort of the the big picture we can just uh, do different interesting things without thinking that okay here are the exhibitions that we did in the last five years what does it look like as a whole so because you're privately run is it you feel like you're more rebellious as a as an art uh, gallery than maybe some of the other ones uh, art museum I, I wouldn't use the word rebellious because, uh, <laughs> like, uh, in a in a Finnish context, uh, this uh, I'd call it Swedish speaking money. We have we have uh, like a like about a ten percent Swedish speaking minority, and uh, in the twentieth century there were a lot of uh, associations put up to do all kinds of cultural funding and stuff, and <laughs> I think it's definitely not rebellious but it is independent Mm. and a lot of these organizations do really good work in in funding really interesting stuff and and not just your sort of traditional things but also sort of things that are quite on the edge of things 
So do you, do you work quite closely together with all the other cultural organizations to sort of, you know, ensure there's a different variety of stuff going on in the city or do you just get on with things yourselves? Yeah, I know that the like our museum director and the other directors, uh, they have good working relationships, so they meet and talk. But I don't know the details of it. But for just from the view of like marketing, we work quite closely with the other organizations because Finland is like it's a border country somewhere up north. Nobody comes here just for one thing. So if I want people to come from abroad to see Amos Rex, it's a question of is it, it's not a question of is Amos Rex interesting. It has to be a question of is Helsinki interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I'm re- I'm really happy when somebody else does well because it's it's so, something good for me as well so when well Helsinki is interesting when we have lots of interesting things to do lots of uh, nice restaurants uh, and hotels and so on it, it makes the whole place more interesting and brings visitors for us as well it's really a different mindset from from a big city because people are going to come to London or New York or Paris or Berlin anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> And then it's like a competition of where do the tourists spend their time. <laughs> but but here it's it's more about working together. And then also uh, the group of visitors who are really into visual arts. There aren't that many places here to see, so they have time to see most of them. So it's not a competition that do you go to Kiasma or Amsterdam. Like art within sort of walls of, of, of galleries uh, or museums, can sometimes be very sort of restrictive and it's like how do you know do you see a, a point where you can expand outside of the gallery and into the city uh how how does street art affect you know uh, art gal- art museums and you know is there space for that uh, we, we don't notice as much street art when we're walking around helsinki as other cities there's definitely space for it and when we were building the museum we had commissioned works on the walls like the construction walls around the, the construction site but from again from a personal perspective sometimes i don't find it really in- interesting when the street art is brought into this institutional context it's not, i feel it takes something out of it sometimes it can also work really well but in Helsinki, there's a bit, if we just talk about graffiti, for instance, mm-hmm. there's been a huge change. There was, there were these like wars here. People would be catching people and taking them to like jail. And uh, it was like a difficult period, but then things really changed about five years ago. And now it's more about working together and there are lots of legal places to paint. I think that's very similar to to where you know, in Dundee um, we've had a lot of legalized street art places now where people can go and paint on walls and it's still trying to feel like you know how do you get it into the city in a more constructive way than than just tagging and you know putting yeah. your name on things. But and and we we have a gallery or several galleries, but Make Your Mark is the main one that that has its sort of roots in in street art. I think I think you know, the, the, where we're kind of coming from is is having a design museum in our city opening. We have contemporary art galleries, and you know 
how it's very noticeable to us that there's a difference uh, or we've been working in design we see a difference between art and design and then actually when you put it into a museum context is you know is it displayed in a way that that is clear that there's a difference or or, or is there just a big gray area between art and design that uh, where they cross over each other and it doesn't actually matter if it's an art museum or a design museum they're kind of exhibiting kind of the same thing we could show design in Amstrax I know that it's not in the plans right now but I also know that it would be possible so it hasn't been sort of decided not to in some ways some of the you know, team lab stuff incorporates a lot of design into what they mm-hmm. what they do so. yeah and, and they do also like commercial stuff mm-hmm. I, I know because I think with the, with a whole bunch of work as well, it's it's very difficult to to draw that line in a specific place because you may have technology that's involved that you're designing that system in order to deliver the the piece, mm. um, which is defined as, as art um, potentially, and that's when things start to get really blurred and, and difficult. So it is, I think, what we found for our discussions is that it, that generally design involves elements of art, and that art involves elements of design yeah definitely and if uh, if I think about those sort of famous designers Finnish designers from the 20th century and and knowing how they worked it's it's definitely a a sort of like the borders are really sort of mushy yeah (laughs) I think in previous episodes we've identified that the grey space between Sort of what is defined as art and what is defined as design is the exciting bit. That's the bit where everyone likes to be and then they're working. So if you're a designer, you enjoy that sort of mix between art and design. If you're an artist, you probably enjoy using design techniques in it as well. It's only when it's it's finished and it's kind of presented that it's seen as either art or design. And mm. yeah, I, I mean, I also think that not even just between art and design, but between different disciplines, when you that grey area between. Say you were to put, I don't know, um, a graphic designer and a potter together, and it's that grey area between the two practices. That's when the interesting stuff mm. starts to happen, mm. um, and that's sort of cross pollination. So I think it's yeah, it's maybe not specific to art and design, but sort of any two mm. practices when they come together. Pottery is a, is an interesting example because I was going to say that art always has this element of something that's somehow difficult or good art should have something like that and then a good chair shouldn't be difficult at all <laughs> and of course there's like the Reedwell chair the red and blue and whatever what the colors are mm. chair that that isn't even meant to be comfortable it's yeah. meant to keep you as a sort of in a tense and ready for action state <laughs> you know coming to Helsinki we we have this kind of perception from from Scotland that Helsinki is a city that really gets a lot of things right um, particularly when it comes down to how it empowers the citizens of the city and it, it's it's okay one of the things we're kind of doing when we're here is trying to find out you know how does that feel how is that from inside the Helsinki do you feel like Helsinki is a city that gets everything right my perspective is of course very skewed because I've just opened an art museum that's re- really popular and that's working closely with the city and also there's been a like a change that's really positive, so I can sort of analyze that change. But then, at, 
but then trying to look at what the problems are. I have these still these endorphins from last fall and the opening of the museum that I only see the good things right now. <laughs> but uh, like 20 years ago when I moved to the city, uh, I squatted houses <laughs> <laughs> because we had these empty buildings and and there were these like these uh, guards catching kids painting graffiti and stuff so it was really different then and uh, then we had all kinds of events starting like the restaurant day and then the city started giving out these empty buildings to the squatters to be renovated and it sort of changed the idea that uh, the people living in the city are the city and the city works for them and that of course doesn't always work but it's it's something that i think really has gone through the bureaucracy that the sort of viewpoint you want <laughs> but on, going back to amistrix um you know what were some of the biggest challenges that kind of came up in in the whole process of, of creating it and opening it and the first exhibition definitely a big challenge was just getting our heads we had been operating this really nice quiet art museum there for 50 years we didn't have to care how many visitors we had because the association would give money f to like pay for the expenses and nobody was really interested how many visitors we had and so on and then to, to sort of get everybody to into this new idea that we're not building a new building for the old museum but we're actually building a new museum that was something big and it, it actually went quite well uh, but it was definitely a big change that had to happen inside our heads and then after that it was just practical things like it's a small organization the amount of things that have to be done and thought of is just huge and what has happened is this in this process is that I've really become more sort of compassionate towards anybody who's working on a big project I I completely understand that every thing can't be finished <laughs> when it opens and everything can be perfect it's like a continuing process so that was episode number five yeah Quite interesting, different chat from three different people there, um, very different businesses, and they're all kind of, you know, working in a, a similar way to kind of you know, provide uh, design culture for Helsinki, and they're all kind of you know, working in their own fields. Um, I was kind of quite interested in the My Helsinki brand design there. I think Ansi's chat about um, how on, I mean, they've been quite honest again with us about how people reacted to that and. You know the the unfortunate sort of cir circumstances of that being leaked to the to the public, and then the reaction of that just being around color is something I think we could probably relate to as well. Where you know, whenever you design something, and uh, if you can't explain your decisions behind why you do something, then people jump on the very obvious things like color or or uh, shape or things that they they don't like um, without thinking about the whole thing. I think it's uh, you know. 
I think it was testament to how good their designs were that that, that backlash did only last 48 hours and and uh, kind of was overpowered by people saying actually this is, this is actually really good yeah and I think those it, it being seen as an ongoing constant developing process um, and brand it's not a static thing um, I think that was really important um, and those sessions that they put in place with people who are not necessarily designers but will be using the brand um, I think th- those are really important and really key to keep those connections and keep pushing the, the quality and the, the understanding of how to utilise the brand in the, in the best possible way the cable factory was interesting. I think, um, I think particularly coming from where we've come from, where we've been in a, a collective space in Dundee before, which uh, shut its doors. Um, seeing that sort of, or, or even hearing, you know, how much that ownership of buildings and how much people really were, it would be up in arms if if all those uh, companies that are in there that provide services essentially for the city provide, you know, provide. Uh, design and creativity and 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 also space for people to do things in um where to suddenly disappear um i think that was that was another sort of takeaway point for me mm. and then just seeing that i mean the the popularity of, of famous rex and um they talked about how they they lowered their their demographic that um sort of engaged with art um, and I think that, I mean, it's probably a lot down to the Team Lab exhibition and the nature of that for their very first. It was a very clever um, acquisition to get them involved. Um, I think it took them a bit by surprise as well, though, how popular that was as, a, as an exhibition. You, sort of, you know, you get these very Instagrammable exhibitions now, and I think we kind of chat about that there. And it's, um, I think that probably helps. But I think also what helps is it's just the playful nature of the building. And I think we, we saw it there. We saw... You know, when we were downstairs, we saw kids sort of banging on the portals and waving at us. And um, yeah, they, you know, they, there's a sort of interaction with with the the building that you can have. And yeah, you can skate on it, you can snowboard on it, um, and and yeah, it's 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 a space that is is not intimidating. Um, I think that probably helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so. Overall, um, from the sort of takeaways for me from the visit to Helsinki. Um, I was really impressed by the the visibility of design and the quality of design on display. Um, I think the amount of, of just even little bits and pieces of, of signage or um, work or the sort of openness of studios that you're sort of wandering there's windows at street level and people are um, having surface design meetings or you're just wandering past and people are working at their desks and it felt the design felt very at the front and centre of, of everything that they they do um, at a sort of uh, business level, but also at a city level and how they represent themselves, how they market themselves, um, and how they involve their citizens in decisions um, and empower them to sort of help make their communities better within the city i think all all those points are are what really impressed me about the city and i think because they're again they're a small city and they're a small country you know the country of a similar population to scotland a city probably the same similar population to edinburgh um maybe a wider uh, larger demographic uh, population around helsinki um but they um you know they, they they're they make they know make that makes it for them that makes it easier to be to engage with everybody and you know maybe as scotland as a country and small cities as well we we could probably learn a lot about that um you know that and how to embed design 
into our culture better. I think we talked about that in one of the first episodes of this podcast when we were in Glasgow, you know, about Scotland not having a an embedded design culture. Um, and I think that really helps Helsinki to to do these things that we kind of come away going, ooh, wish we had a bit of that. But I think we've also got to be careful. We, you know, you can't just take things from other places and put them into cities. You know, you have to kind of work. You know, it really is about working with populations and what what matters to people. Because um, yeah, I mean, I think a major um, a major point in their their history and their development has has been 2012 for the World Design Capital. Um, but they've I mean, Laura sounds, sums it up really beautifully and tells that sort of story of the, the heritage and the, the sort of post-war development of really high-profile Finnish designers that create accessible design that exists in the supermarkets. Um, yeah, it's not high-end polished project uh, products on pedestals and stuff. It's, 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 it's accessible, usable, functional, but also desirable design. Hmm. And I think a lot of the places we went into, they had the same stools, tables, because they are beautiful but functional um, and finish. Oh, even our cups on the plane were, uh, our paper cups for the coffee were Marameco. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, so it, it is that sort of local national designers um, being embedded and being embraced um, by everyone, whether that's... Um, the museums, the airlines, the um, small studios, the 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 city, um, yeah, I, I'm really impressive. And I think there's a lot that we can take away and learn from um, to bring to to Scotland. And, and they are one of the the highest ranking livable countries in the world. Um, I think they're number six at the moment. I think we touched on that in one of the things. And I think you know, for a, somebody asked me when when I came back. Um, yeah, but are they are they happy living there? You know, in this in this really cold climate half the year, um, I think they are. <laughs> it's uh, it's like you know they they have a very good thing going on there, and they really deal with uh, you know the infrastructure of the city uh, functions in all all of these sort of extreme weather conditions, and people also help it to function. You know, we see people outside our apartment when we're there shoveling snow out of the park so that people could get in the gates with dogs. You know, it wasn't waiting for somebody to turn up from the the city authorities and and do it it was like you know shovels were provided they were there people just get on and do it yeah and there's that sense of sort of community spirit mm-hmm. um, around that i think which is great um, that was a uh, all-round good trip yeah um so if there's anything you want to bring up to chat about the um this episode or the previous one that's maybe raised um then get in touch so it's at agency of none um, on twitter and on instagram um yeah just drop us a message and if you enjoyed it please share it um and if you listen to this one without listening to the previous one go back and listen to the previous one (laughs) okay so that's it um episode number five i'll push the button